<sighs> Breathe, my darlings. Uh, where are we? Welcome to The Librarian is In, the New York Public Library's podcast about books, culture, and what to read next. I'm Frank. And I'm Crystal. <laughs> and we're here to talk about books. How are you doing today? Okay. Yeah. Holding on. Mm-hmm. One day at a time, like I've been saying and singing for the last month <laughs> or so. Everything's fine. Every time I say that, I always realize everything really is fine. So it's good to say it yeah. out loud. And things are progressing, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's really a perspective situation, you know, getting ready to reopen. Um, perspective meaning, you know, over the last, I think over the last two years, you know, really the length of time that all this has taken the pandemic and renovation just forces a perspective that has somewhat taken hold. I mean, I think we're all locked in our own heads in some ways, but um, like I just said, I'm in my head. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. About anything. And then someone says, how are you? And I'm like, you know, I don't want to spill and then just say, I'm all right. And you realize it is all right. (laughs) There's really no life or death situation. Fortunately. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this perspective, like, it's okay. And then you realize, oh, yeah, I should just be enjoying a little more. Mm-hmm. So, oh, it's hot in here, though. <laughs> no air conditioning in this room. Oh, no. Does it never have air conditioning, or is it just out for today? No, it's, I don't know. It, this room has never been on. I don't know why, <laughs> but figure it out. It's also hotter today, but. Yeah. So I'll schwitz a little bit. That's the way it goes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also drinking hot coffee, which doesn't help. Do you have a fan? Oh, I have lots of fans, honey. <laughs> <Haven't you heard? laughs> a fan heard? that can cool you off there. <laughs> Everyone out there listening is like, wear your fan, <laughs> Frank. Oh. Crickets. How about you? How are you, Crystal? I'm fine. I'm in an air-conditioned room at 39th Street. You know, it's even, it's the little things, so-called little things. Mm-hmm. You know, a little bit of cool air on a hot day goes a long way. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, yeah. It's beautiful out. I should even open the window. Maybe to- I know. I can see those four giant windows behind you yeah. with the... It's, it's hot out. out. It'll be a little and we, we're right next to, actually, we're right, well, I'll just, let's just say it now. We're right next to a, um, there's a garden next to Jefferson Market Library. And Jefferson Market Library, as everyone knows, used to be a courthouse, was built as a courthouse. And next door where the garden is, which I'm looking at now, um, was a prison next to the courthouse in the 1870s, and then it became a women's house of detention, like a women's only prison. Mm-hmm. And everybody listening, Crystal and I are going to read um, a new book on the history of the women's house of detention uh, for the next time together. Um, it has a, a queer history, the women's house of detention mm-hmm. does. And I think that's interesting for now. Plus I know the author too, and I'm doing a program with him, Hugh Ryan. Uh, so that could be very local interest, history, New York. He's a good writer. He wrote When Brooklyn Was Qu- Queer, and it was so good. So mm-hmm. sounds like, sounds interesting. Yeah. I'm I mean, I know sure. so much about the Women's House of Detention, but Hugh Ryan, the author, did a lot of research on this, and I think he, I'm sure he's discovered things I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I'd mm-hmm. love to see how he, he writes it. And also his subtitle is, the Women's House of Detention, A Queer History of a Forgotten Prison. I mean, there's a lot of stories that I've heard from the from the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Because the prison, the Women's House of Detention was there to the late 70s. I mean, to 74. And a lot of people in the neighborhood still around, and they tell stories about, because it was right smack in the middle of the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Now it's a garden, which is amazing. So, anywho, what else is on your cultural landscape or personal emotional 
I watched two movies this weekend. Really? Yes. Um, one was Top Gun 2 Maverick, which was just fine. Next. <laughs> I know. I was expecting so much from it. And I was just like, it's just a bunch of people heavy breathing in a cockpit. It's not like a lot of fun. I can't see you, Frank. You put a post-it note over oh, the camera. Yeah, that's the point. You were heavy so upset by breathing. me giving up Top Gun that you had to cover the screen. No, but the other one I actually did like. It was called Fire Island. I think it's on Hulu or something. Oh, oh the TV show? No, it's a movie. So it's like, uh, oh. it's it's a movie that is a retelling of Pride and Prejudice except oh. it is a bunch of gay men who go to like fire islands and it was kind of like really fun and lovely some unexpected things but you have like the the characters mr bingley uh darcy obviously under different names uh i think joel kim booster is the elizabeth bowen yang is the um J jane yeah jane character but i really enjoyed it it was like a lot of fun and i think it was a very like unexpected twist on a very classic story yeah. Hmm, I didn't know it was based on Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, I think I mentioned this to some friends and they were like, are you sure? And I was like, I'm pretty sure there's a character who's just like Mr. Bingley. So oh. and Margaret Cho's in it, which is fantastic. Oh. And Rogers, who else? A bunch of other, like, it's the cast is amazing. The cast is like fantastic and super impressive. I think it was written by Joel Kim Booster as well. Oh. Yeah. It's on... I think it's on Hulu. Oh. I think, right? Let me double check. Yeah, there's ads all over the village, I think. My I my roommate has all the apps, so. Oh. <laughs> all the apps. So that sounds cool. I think a lot has been based on Pride and Prejudice. There could be a list no. of even Pride and Prejudice and yeah, Zombies maybe. or something. Yeah, I think we, we could probably do many episodes just on retellings. Um, you know, I've never read Pride and Prejudice. Get out of here. <laughs> Full disclosure. Wow. So this I is know. what it feels like when you reference like a classic Hollywood film star and I don't get the reference. Like I'm starting to feel what you feel. I, well, I'm the difference is that I know a, a lot about it just from living in the culture. Okay. Like it's sisters. There's a hot relationship. Oh, God. It's not. Obviously takes a while it's to happen. Well, I mean, uh, you know, the, <laughs> what is Darcy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I even know. Okay. Darcy and uh, Elizabeth, I guess. Uh -huh, Kira uh -huh. Knightley. Uh, stop. <laughs> uh, what a role they, reversal. And yes. Darcy is always played by, you know, some heartthrob. And yeah. I know, of course, like a lot of love, it takes a while to get there. So, but I, the convolutions, <laughs> I mean, I love Jane Austen. I've read yeah. Emma. I love Emma. Emma's great. And Emma's been made a lot too into Jane Austen's been made into movies. A lot of her books have been made into movies and multiple times. Like Clueless is Emma. Yes. Which I love. Yeah. I mean, there was a Gwyneth Paltrow Emma, which I thought was really good too, with Tony Collette. Yes, and right. Jeremy Northam, right? That yeah. one. And there's a new one with I think was it on Anna Joy? I forget the actress. Oh name. yeah, the the chess movie girl, the chess TV Anna, show. What is it? Oh, Anna Taylor Joy. Yeah, yeah. That was all right. It it was fine. It was not as good as a Gwyneth Paltrow one, of course. Yeah, that was so much fun. Um, mm -hmm. I love Tony Collette though, uh, and that was when Gwyneth Paltrow was like. Oh, she's going to be Gwyneth Paltrow. And then she became Gwyneth Paltrow. Mm -hmm. Goopy. She became Goopy, mm -hmm. which is fine. It's um, <laughs> not another. Oh, but Clueless. I, Clueless is just so good. It's such a great adaptation. Mm -hmm. It's such a great movie, period. But um, and so much fun. And, and I think Elise's Silverstone. <laughs> Silverstone uh, captures like a, the Emma quality so well. Yeah. It's like, really so sweet and so well-meaning and, you know, working hard to be a good person and, you know, mm -hmm. messes up, of course, a little bit. But she just nailed that so well. I mean, um, who's the director? Mar um, uh, Amy Heckerling, who 
who also did Fast Times at Richmond High. Um, but she did a great script, and the whole thing is just timeless. You know, in a weird way, it's sort of timeless, um, even though it's mid '90s. So you know, a lot of the technology mm-hmm. isn't in place. It's you know, I it's funny that. I say that because I realized yesterday I had a thought where whenever I read about history or people or even my own past and I see the year in which I'm reading about, the first thing I always think is, oh, that was before the internet or the internet already existed. So it's like, it's one of the first things I think about, like if it says like, you know, Crystal um, walked to the store in 2001. I'm like, well, the internet was around, but not iPhones yet. So it was, that's the first thing I think. (laughs) <laughs> because then it's sort of like the the it's a, sort of a landscape of that impacts what I'm about to read historically to me. It's mm-hmm. like what the culture was like. I guess it's that much of a schism, mm-hmm. which leads me to another thought I wanted to say, which is, and I'm just, I always say it's the last time I'll say something like this, but <laughs> I'm a liar. I think it's slightly selfish because we're Jefferson Market, as I keep saying, ad nauseum, and everyone's like, yeah, yeah, we know is going to reopen. And it's been a long time since the full full building has been a re, has been fully open. So I'm partly like, who will come back and love us? <laughs> um, and I just, but I also feel just because of my own habits lately, and this is related to technology, is that I think every single person should have a library book in in their home, or and especially maybe by their bedside. So you read for half an hour in the morning, or you read for half mm-hmm. an hour at night. I just feel like one that communion between you and the book. And I'm talking about a real book, if I have to say it, that paper, the everything, the holding of it, the communing of it, the non-interruptive nature of it. Even if it's a story you're just like, hmm, about, I think it's good for your mental health. Mm -hmm. I really just do. And the other part is the library book aspect is that it's also your sharing. And I love that value that you can remind yourself of. You're sharing that book with your community um, you have it for that time. And there's no fines now. People should feel a little bit more comfy mm-hmm. with a library book by their side because we're not penalizing you. And, you know, we're not after you to be mm-hmm. um, anxious about bringing this shared object back, a book. I just think really in terms of mental health, whenever I get into a book, and I got into the book I read for this session, <laughs> this session, <laughs> this episode of the podcast um it's like nothing else it's a great 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 feeling it it shocks me that oh i'm like i'm not being interrupted by outside forces i know there's all sorts of probably switches you can pull to mute notifications Mm -hmm. ever so i think people should make you should make love to a library book. No, please don't. No, you have it. If you do, keep that book and never bring it back. I just, like, I just, I don't know. The idea of have, like, a, you, everyone has a library book on their kitchen table or sitting at their on their bedside table or whatever it is. It's just a lovely thing, and just a moment. You don't have to pressure yourself yeah. to finish the whole book in one night. It's like. Mm-hmm. Have a moment with these words, with this author's words, and try something new. I was, sorry, I was going through the collection because we're getting it ready to reopen and going through the 300s, which is like lots of different social aspects of life. And I was like, some of these books are so interesting and they're like deep dives into like specific history or social aspects of life, like very specific. I can't, of course, think of one title, but I was very impressed. And I was just like, then I thought, who has time to read a 200-page, 250-page book on a very specific social aspect of life? Like, there was one book, like The Hat in the 1950s. It was a because the 390s has style and fashion in it, like historical discussions of fashion. And then books on education, like One School's History. And I was like, mm-hmm. somehow that, that added to the appeal, like, slow down and take that big deep plunge into mm-hmm. something specific and spend that time with it. I feel like it yields dividends, emotional and spiritual. I do. Okay. I won't rant anymore. Rant over. <laughs> as they say. But I don't know. I think something very lovely about it. 
There's no I say I miss. The shells. I keep talking and not letting you <laughs> go. Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, man. I could go five topics back. But no, I was going to say the... <laughs> Um, the sharing of the book, I do miss the, the, you know how like there used to be that little flap of paper in the front where people would stamp and yeah. you would see all the stamps from the previous checkouts. I kind of miss that physical manifestation of like seeing how many other people or hands were like on the book prior. And that's a little bit lost with, I mean, the digital data is like yeah. really great for us in a lot of different ways, but. I mean, I, I was going through the books, as I said, and they, some of them have been in storage for like three years and or two and a half or th no, well, you know, whatever. Um, and in the front flap, like the little plastic flap over the blurb in the front part of the book, people usually stick their due date slips that we give them and mm -hmm. which I love. And I pull, pulled one out and it was like, you know, do March 2nd, 2020. And I was like, oh, in before times. And I was just like, I don't know, just the whole thing of it. I found bookmarks in a book that mm -hmm. people left and I love, and I left them because I like other people. Mm -hmm. to discover them. I don't know. I, I, I just love the whole thing of it. I, I also love the journey. I was thinking about, and I hate that word because it's overused. You know, I get about overused words, even though they're probably the most appropriate, but I feel like for something that does yield those, I think emotional dividends, like reading a book, book, um, even the journey to the library is like a, mm -hmm. a moment of like, I am now going for this one thing at this one beautiful place and pick it up and go, uh, go home. I just I even love that process. Like mm -hmm. you have to make effort. Like no, I don't want everything to be effortless. So-called because mm -hmm. it's not, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't find technology to be effortless at all. I mean, it's always like yeah. a, a, a um, getting online for this, like I'm always in a crank mood because I'm just like, Ugh, getting the. I, I do think. I do think that there is some like beauty in that kind of ritualistic process of like you get up, you have your coffee, you go to the library, you pick up your books, you take it home, you put it on your shelves, etc. But I, I have to say like you know the digital aspect is really great because it does like the access issues like it's it's so much more accessible to a lot of people who are maybe busy or maybe their work hours don't or they're sorry their off hours don't um overlap with the library's like opening times right you know no so, i i yeah. agree with accessibility i thought you were going in a different direction but i will never which agree. direction <laughs> which well in terms of literal accessibility like people can't leave their homes like we used to that, have books, yeah. we have books by, by mail. We still have books mm -hmm. by mail. Um, but I will never accept ever a I'm too busy excuse for anything almost. You're never oh, too you busy. Gotta accept that. You gotta accept that. I just don't agree. I, I don't agree with that. I I think it depends. I, I feel like yes, in, in some sense, like but I, I have to recognize like a level of privilege and being able to say, like, you know, you're never too busy because I think some people are like really, really busy mm. because they have a lot of like childcare, multiple jobs. Like when I first moved to New York, I had like three jobs I was juggling at the same time, you know, like it's it's different. You know, I think you get to a point where like where I am, yes, sure. I, I can subscribe to that, but I don't think that's like a their assessment for well, people like my I parents and their generation who like you know came over had all these other businesses going on and I, yeah it's yeah but I, I get it in some respect but they might but then see they might feel too busy because they I mean maybe part of that is too like an impression of the library as being unavailable to them like it's yeah. too difficult the, the idea of doing it but I have at Jefferson Market was right in the middle of Greenwich Village which is not a poor neighborhood by any means mm -hmm. um, but it's diverse yeah, There's yeah. always hidden streets and apartments. Mm -hmm. I live in the village and I'm not rich. Yeah. Um, I People I've met, I'm thinking of one guy in particular, a dad who was a parks, a parks employee, like worked for parks, the park system. Mm -hmm. He would come in with a bag and haul back a million books for his kids. Mm -hmm. He would come in at the weirdest hours, like you'd think, and happily. He was a sweet guy. I miss him. Mm -hmm. um, I hope he comes back. I wonder where his kids are probably older now, but I remember thinking he, he takes, they would come in with like a, you know, a dirty uniform just from working hard and made the time to do it. It was important to him. I don't know, but I'm not saying, listen, I'm not, I'm not casting aspersions on anyone. I guess what I'm, I am 
questioning is that when when we all say, I'm too busy, it's like, what does that really mean? There's people who are literally, like you said, working three jobs, have three kids, whatever. Like, no, I don't mean whatever. I mean, that's serious. Yeah. It's this sort of maybe more, I'm too busy, which doesn't really mean I'm too busy. It just means (laughs) I feel too busy. Maybe not I'm literally too busy, but I feel Mm -hmm. too busy. I, I, I mean, I, I get it. Like, I, I just don't read online, and, and I won't. And so I had to go buy a book the other day, and I was like, okay, I have to figure out when I can get over there. And I didn't do it that day because I was like, I'm never going to make it over there. I'm too busy. Mm-hmm. And then I did the next day, and it was like a journey that I value, period. Mm-hmm. Just the act of going to a place because reading is important to me. It's like, you know, it is. It's, it's mm-hmm. important. Yeah. Now I realize even just – emotionally mental health wise Um, such a cacophony of life around everything and to actually just have a moment with a book feels great Um, I I do agree with you 100% that I think reading should be a big priority in everyone's lives like absolutely I just don't want us to be like judgmental of people who can't for whatever reason because of their like life circumstances or jobs etc and maybe like digital does help them out with that access um you know because maybe they can't make trips or whatever but but yes i 100 percent agree if in the yeah, perfect world yeah. everybody should be top of our priorities getting books reading them accessing them yeah i mean like with like just being around the construction workers here at mm-hmm. jefferson market like when there was break, because I was saying, well, people have lunch hours, break time, all that kind of thing. And I, but yet you never know really someone's situation, but I was, you know, I would watch them and all, you know, without exception, really every one of the guys was watching something video wise on their phones mm-hmm. at their breaks, whatever, not a newspaper anymore. That seems to not be a thing mm-hmm. um, or a book, but like watching something that musical or video. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, I understand that too in some sense. I feel like there have been times just now with work and other things where you get so busy that you almost don't even have the like the mental energy to read a book, right? right? Because I think it does take mental energy. And so you would rather just watch a show because it decompresses you because you've had like a really tough like 12 hour shift or something like that. Um, And I think that's that's so true. Yeah. All right. See, part of this mental health thing about reading for half an hour that I've, that I've devised is really directly from that, because during the last couple of years, mm-hmm. for obvious reasons, like I have, I never really watched YouTube or stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I got very much into it. And I would watch like you'd go through like most of us do like a deep dive into some crazy mm-hmm. aspect of of something like even if it's Karen so-called videos or or something more serious and um, you and there's never ending supply. Mm-hmm. And for I would just be sort of mesmerized by it. And it was a sense of, I can't concentrate on anything else. So just having this wash over me, this, mm-hmm. these hits of, you know, pleasure centers hitting, hitting me, like getting these pops, like from these short videos or even longer ones. Um, after a couple of years, it, it, it now makes me anxious again. Like, yeah. I'm just like, I, I know I haven't, but I'm like, I feel like I've seen it all already. But yeah. I know that YouTube is limitless in lots of ways. But it just makes me now anxious. Now I feel like, almost like an addict, like, well, now I've I've seen this one, like, come to the next one, click, click, click. And I don't know. For a moment there, it was pleasurable, but it, it doesn't sustain. Really. Yeah. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I just don't like how it feels now. But I see, it, I it's formed a place in my life like sometimes I literally am like oh can't wait just to watch something stupid yeah, yeah. Um, and it does feel pleasurable for sure it's again what is it all about balance um, <laughs> but I just yeah I mean libraries and books have always been an interesting thing in the culture like you know some people are just devoted devoted mm-hmm. devoted and other people feel like ooh, libraries and books are not you know, not, not um, something that's for me, mm-hmm. which has always been the, the mission of the library to say, yes, it is. Yeah. People are sometimes so surprised how easy it is to get a card and, and to enjoy the library. They're like, wow. I, I heard that over and over at the temporary libraries and about people coming in to get cards. And we're just like, well, this is the easiest thing I've done all day. And I'm like, <laughs> well, I'm glad. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know. The whole thing is just lovely. I love libraries. <laughs> I do too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there is, I, I agree. I think there is a book out there for everyone. It's just a matter of like finding it for you. And I think that's what a lot of the yeah, staff are great at doing. It, um, yeah. It's not a, it, in some ways it's like a, like reading is important and books are wonderful. They are, but it's not that big a deal. You don't like it. Read 20 pages and come get another one. Or take two. Oh, I, I, I can't do that though. I have I mean, to I finish the whole book. I don't either. I mean, to be honest, I don't either. <laughs> Even if I it's can't. terrible, I'm just like, I gotta keep going. Just I feel like some people feel anxious. I mean, I yeah. know when I was younger, I did. Like, mm-hmm. if I didn't feel after X amount of pages that it was working, I'd be like guilty that I was lacking something. Or um, maybe it's like I don't give up books. True, still, but I, but I, I don't feel the pressure of like, all right, this is going to change yeah. my life. Maybe there's like a little bit of internal optimism that like the next page is going to get better, but then you get all the way to the end. You're like, oh, it didn't get better. (laughs) So, oh, well. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, sort of speaking of which, (laughs) I mean, I have questions and concerns, but I read (laughs) this time I did read um, something for pleasure that I want. Like I keep saying, I want to read something that's for pleasurable or something actually that makes me laugh, but it wasn't a laugh a minute book by any means, but it was so-called a fun thriller E type. A fun thriller. Okay. It's a book that I think a lot of people listening would have read already because it's about a year ago it was published. It's called The Plot. Oh. Have you heard of it? Plot by Jean Hanth Correlates. I've seen that. Maybe it's on my two read list. Oh no. I- well, a friend of mine had read it and loved it and then I was actually meeting with one of our capital planning people and her teenage daughter, I was holding it, was reading oh, it. I was like, all right. And you it. stole it from her. No, well, right? I, she, I did not, but I got it from the library and um, uh, I was like, well, that's two people I have to read it. So I, I did. And, and I knew it was going to be a fun, technically a fun read. Um, and it was, but then, <laughs> Oh. Then, of course, though, I'm like, of course, I can't just be like, it was fun. Here's the plot and then move on. But I'm like, I have questions about issues it brings up because that's what I always think about. But like the plot, you know, as a word can refer to what? The story of a mm-hmm. book or a story. It could also be a place where you're buried. Oh, oh interesting. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Mm-hmm. Like burial plot. And also it could be like something conspiratorial like a plot mm-hmm. so that that's mentioned in the book about how the or so like plotting like plotting on a map right plotting on a map isn't that a term <laughs> i don't know like a verb plotting no okay what's dictionary oh boy no i don't think so honey oh my god no, it's like the three I just said, a sequence of events and a narrative and a moral or a legal plan. A, t- a, designated uh, a graph showing the relation between two variables. <laughs> it's called a plot? Yeah. Really? <laughs> Apparently. Well, that doesn't yeah. pertain to the book. Oh, okay. And oh, the, the verb form of it, mark, a root or a position on a chart. There you go. Mark out or allocate points on a graph. It doesn't pertain. <laughs> So there's no graphs, is what wow. you're saying. You're smart. How did did you remember that from like high school or college? I did go to math camp, and you I went won't. To what? I will. I said I went to math camp, and I oh. will not speak more on this subject. I'm more than happy for you not to. <laughs> wow. Um, okay. I will not take <laughs> questions at this time. <laughs> you should set a. You should write a book where a murder uh, takes place in math camp. <laughs> so the plot, um, the plot of the plot is a. Just, I don't know if I'm going to give spoilers or not, but I'll I'll warn people. Um, let's see how badly you want to hear the the ending. <laughs> but um, the plot is like there's an author who named Jake who has written a very young guy as a young guy written a book that was very well received in the literary world. Uh, his debut novel, and then his second book was you know a flopper Rooney didn't take off as well. And so he's sort of now working in an MFA program, like a very not respected um, MFA program teaching writing. He's you know, now in his early 30s and his, his, literary land, his literary success is sort of dimly receding into the past. And he's just like, uh, 
about it. And a lot of the book has very satirical moments about writing programs and about writing itself, actually, and also what it is to be an author. Um, and one of his students comes into Jake's office at one point and basically tells him, I really don't need to be here. I don't really need your advice um, because I have a plot that's going to be a huge success. I'm going to be on Oprah. It's going to be made into a movie. It's going to be everything. And Jake's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard it all before. And then eventually this guy, this arrogant dude tells Jake what the plot is. We don't know it yet as readers, but he tells Jake and Jake's like, this is a plot that will be a bit bestseller, like for sure. So he's like, all right, you know, I'll respect. it's his idea. And then life goes on. And a couple of years later, he's, the MFA program moves online and he doesn't have a job as much anymore. And um, he's just trying to still scrounge around for a, making a living in the writing world if he can and can't really finish his third book. And, you know, and then he Googles, as we do, um, this kid who had had this great plot idea to see what, what became of him because the book, I don't think, has come out. And if it had, he would have heard about it. So he finds out that this this guy that had this great idea for the plot that was in Jake's MFA class is dead. And he's like, really? Oh, terrible. And then he debates whether or not, of course, what do you think? He should steal the plot and write the book himself. And he does, mm -hmm. Jake. And it does become a huge success. Um, and he is chosen by Oprah and it is going to be made into a movie directed by Steven Spielberg until, and then one day he gets an email that says, you're a thief. <laughs> and he, it's from like a anonymous email. He doesn't know who it is, of course. And it starts growing from there. And he's Jake is terrified that, you know, the culture at large will find out he stole mm -hmm. this plot from this guy who died. And so he goes on a quest to figure out who the, who the person is sending him these threatening emails about his thieving of the plot. So does that intrigue you? It does intrigue me. Are we sure that Evan is dead? So that was your first question because you're thinking like a thriller reader. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess at that point, you're not sure of anything. Okay. Okay. Because mm -hmm. he has to find out. Um, so he does... So he does go into what he does. Oh, the email that he gets the um, the threatening email from, like you're a thief, is is called talented tom at gmail, whatever. Mm -hmm. And this is what's fun about the book too. There are literary references all over the book about mm -hmm. to other books. And the MFA program where Jake taught was at a college called Ripley College. Mm -hmm. Now. Again, the literary illusion there, which I got, but I didn't get other ones, was talented Mr. Ripley. Yeah. His name is Tom Ripley. So mm -hmm. talented Tom was the email that Jake got. And Jake put it together like, well, it must be, a, it must be a, a, an allusion to Ripley College, Tom Ripley. And Tom Ripley was a character that was famously deceptive and stole identities. Mm-hmm to become a better person <laughs> in his own mind. So put the Patricia Highsmith book, Talented Mr. Ripley. So there's that. And there are other allusions too, which are fun. Um, Cause it's all about writing and writers and people who read, you know, generally. And then there's this thriller comp component or mystery component. <laughs> so that's the first one you get. If there's actually, and I didn't get it. There's a big, big, big giveaway in terms oh. of um, a literary illusion in the book that if you under, if you read read this particular book, um, you would have you might have figured out quick, quickly what what the story is. And from what I mean, I figured out I'm, I am like the dullest dullard in the mm -hmm. world in terms of mysteries. Like I'm always like giving everyone the benefit of a doubt. It's like, but basically someone's holding a dripping knife and I'm like, well, maybe it's not them. <laughs> like, you know, cause I, I feel like the author might twist me or might yeah. surprise me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm like the worst at deciding on who did it. Um, but I sort of figured it out, you know, fairly close to the end, but not before that was revealed. I, I mean, I didn't really shouldn't say 
I didn't figure it out because I don't commit like that. I basically thought, well, this character has got to have something to do with it. And then it turns out that that character was the dun 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 oh. person. Wait, what, can you tell me what the the ref the giveaway reference was, or is that a spoiler mm-hmm. as well? Well, this might be a spoiler, so I feel like everyone listening has read this book, but um, <laughs> I haven't read it. I just checked it out on Libby, by the way, because oh, you were wow. talking about it. Okay, I, like, I have to read this book now. So if anyone wants to, I mean, well, the the and I've never read this book, and I it's really it's always been on my list. It's a book called Housekeeping by Marilyn Robinson. Oh, I've heard of it. I have not read it. I, yeah, it's I like would a not classic, really, a modern-day classic. There's a a real um, mention of that that Jake doesn't get, and the character mm-hmm. at the end of the book basically says to Jake, you're so stupid. I, I was <laughs> obvious about this um, reference that oh, I needed to pick it up, and I didn't either. Um, I, I wonder if somebody did, if what, how that changed the reading of it, which is an interesting <laughs> thing. So in some ways... Gene Hanf Correlates was not, which did occur to me, was not particularly writing a mystery. She was writing a mystery and thriller aspects, but she gave you these clues early on that if you were a reader of sorts, or um, you could have figured it out. So it wasn't, it wasn't like she was trying to write an airtight book where the big twist reveal at the end was a total shock. She was giving you the opportunity to figure it out beforehand, which means she was writing about other things as well, not just a thriller mystery thing, which really is also like, you can imagine like what, who, what story, who tells what, like, and it's a big thing right now in the culture too, which is interesting to me. It's like, who tells whose story? Like Jake basically took this guy's story, but he's dead, the guy's the guy who has this story. But then Jake also realized that the guy guy that told him this great plot probably took it from his own life. So he's also taking other people's lives stories. And really that's the the core of it because someone involved in that amazing plot that this guy who dies tells Jake is the one that comes after Jake because Mm -hmm. they don't want their story revealed because it involves murder. (laughs) Actually about how we tell stories. I was, thinking this morning, like, I could basically say, this is a story about someone who kills five people and gets away with it. Because that's, that's true. Five people? Okay. Five. <laughs> I mean, this is, all right, spoiler alert. Oh my gosh, no, maybe I shouldn't listen because I want to oh. read it. No, no, you I can take it. Actually, you're the perfect, you're the perfect audience. And okay. <laughs> if you reach your limit of spoiler, I won't do it. So, so that's that. And there's, it's, it's a well-written book, I think. There's a lot of great stuff about writing and whose story is whose. And it's a little cynical, definitely satirical. Um, the characters, it also brings up the issue of likability. And I'm not a big one for likability, but I think um, there was a sense of... It sends, uh, I, I think it was almost like an homage, or not an homage, I think it was self-consciously, or not self-consciously, the author was consciously sort of trying to emulate a Gone Girl type vibe. And oh. Gone Girl is mentioned as being like the ne plus ultra of like surprise smash bestsellers with a great plot. Because mm-hmm. one of the characters is just like, the motivations, I think, this is me interpreting, it's like, I'm not sure I, I think they're just a mean, evil, icky person. It's not Mm -hmm. like you can be like, oh, because this and this happened to them. I think, and that sort of maybe was not as pleasing to me personally, because when you're purest evil, Mm -hmm. that's somehow less interesting than um, someone who is does bad things, but has a lot of other range to their personality, you know? but it could be fun too because it's harsh. I actually was falling asleep the other night and had a moment of waking up when I was thinking of that evil character. Cause I was like, it's so mean. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but then, you know, did, did this other person deserve what this evilly character gave to them? I don't know. Did you think of, remember our discussion evilly. of that, that New York times article about that short story, the kindest, I think was the name of it. Oh, you'd mentioned this before, right? I think we had a whole discussion about it. 
What was it about again? I mean, I don't remember the title. It was um, an author writing a short story that I think pulled a lot of elements from the life of this one other writer who was posting on Facebook. Oh, like you mean the Art Friends book? Was that the one? I mean, the Art Friends article. Like, she donated a kidney to, to... Yeah, 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 of course. No, the, it was like, but, remember it was like, what are art friends? We, yeah, of course. I, oh, it's what makes a bad art friend or something right, like right, that. Right, right, right. Oh, yeah. I, but the elements of like a story appropriation and like appropriation right. of people's like life stories seemed kind of relevant. Did you feel like any connection between the two? I mean... I don't, the author, I don't, uh, Correlates, the author of the plot, I don't think resolves that question. I don't think it's a resolvable question. I mean, yeah. um, because, you know, who owns a, I don't think you can copyright, I mean, just legally, a story idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, it becomes a matter of legality, I guess, of whether there's enough similarities about this story. Because, you know, like the Art Friend article, it's like, you know, there were there was enough in the story for the person who was appropriated or supposedly appropriated to argue that it was taken from their life. But there was enough different that the author could say, yeah, you inspired me, but I changed X, Y and Z because, you know, this is my vision. And um, Jake in the plot, you know, he has this conversation with himself. He's like, yes, he took the plot from the guy who died. But he changed so much about the characters and also gave them, he thought, a lot of depth and stuff that was not in the original idea that he got. But the plot points were were definitely there. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he ruminates on that. Like, you know, who's to say that it wouldn't have come to someone else and they would write the story? Or who's to say it wouldn't have come to me at some point? Um, and who's to say where what's appropriate where you get your ideas? I mean... An author could be sitting on the subway and overhear a conversation that inspires them to write a story. Mm-hmm. And then if that person recognized that this author had to have overheard them, is that um, something they should go after? I mean, I should say that in the plot, the person comes after Jake because they don't want to be exposed for their killings, basically, or exposed, mm-hmm. period, mm-hmm. Um, because they're not nice people. But you could say someone else would might feel exposed to, even though the populace at large might never connect that person to the story of the book, um, the person might feel exposed and vulnerable, which is another issue of like, when do you just say, well, tough or yeah, fight it. I See, I personally am also like, if somebody wrote about me, let's say, um, that wasn't flattering to me, I don't know if I would take it to the public arena. I don't feel like I might, I don't necessarily feel that taking it to the public sphere is a way of getting um, justice. Oh, okay. I don't always think so. I think sometimes you just say, let someone live their life and do it. It's If it's not connected to you per se. Um, I don't feel like we have to bring everything into the public realm mm-hmm. as a way of deriving justice. Because yeah. people, I guess the narrative is that people feel seen, they feel heard if they bring it to the public sphere. But I don't necessarily feel more seen or heard in the public sphere than I do in my own head sometimes. Yeah. But that's a personal call, really. Yeah. Um, I'm just, see, always questioning, too, or wanting to question, like, what is justice? What really will give you emotional satisfaction? And that actually is the final point I can make on this, is that one thing that I really enjoyed about the plot was when we do something that we sort, we really sort of know when we look back, we realize we sort of really knew this was the wrong thing to do. Like in our guts, we was telling us this is wrong thing to do, but we just couldn't resist. Like Jake couldn't resist taking this plot because it would bring him back to the center of the world. Only world he cared about, which is the literary world. And he knew it would do that and he could not resist it which is to say that one of the, the only recurring nightmare I've ever had in my life, I wonder if you have recurring dreams, was I've killed somebody in this nightmare. And it is a nightmare. It's a terrible nightmare. And I am mostly concerned with the fact that I will get caught, Mm -hmm. that I will be found out that Mm -hmm. I've done this. And I cannot believe that I did it. And then 
in usually in the dream it turns into like when i have the dream where i'm like i can't believe i did this then i start adding the element of like i took a human life like i actually ended a life <laughs> and it's going to ruin my life as well and it's over all over the place and it begs the next question of like when do you own what you've done like that terrible moment when you know something is the wrong choice, but you can't resist because it fulfills your fantasy narrative possibly mm -hmm. or an emotional need that really should not be filled. Um, I feel like meet you as soon as you can, as soon as you're conscious enough is own what you did. So in other words, I used to, when I was reading the plot, I was fantasizing about Jake actually saying yes, because part of the plot plot <laughs> is that he goes on this, you know, glamorous tour and a lot of people always ask him where did you get this idea for this plot and that causes him a lot of stress because he always feels like he has to lie which right away says he knows he feels he did something wrong um mm -hmm. and i was fantasizing about if i were in that position what i say um well yes i did meet a guy in a writing program who had this great idea and it was wonderful but i let let it let him it was his idea let him write that story but i did find out later he had unfortunately died and I couldn't resist to take this story. And then even, this is terrible, but like almost spend it as like an honor to this guy, but also, but give that guy a shout out. Mm -hmm. Would that have changed the public's perception of creativity? Would they have been like, well, Jake, you didn't come up with the idea, so you don't deserve all the accolades. And that's really the ego that motivated Jake to not tell that story because he wanted to keep it all to himself and be the writer of writers. Mm. I think that's interesting because I do, I personally feel like if there is that kind of transparency, like you would still get my accolade, like I would still really respect that and enjoy it, but then also be like, you're being honest and I appreciate the honesty because it doesn't diminish the work you would be doing if you were Jake, right? And, and having to, to write out the whole book and all that kind of stuff. And I think that is sometimes we've seen that where people are not willing to be honest and transparent about stuff that they've done. And then that's when I think um, the, what's the word? Society turns on them or something. Yeah. yeah. And or also are less willing to forgive. Exactly. And like my, my nightmare, it's like Jake doesn't get away with it because he can't fully enjoy his success because he's always afraid he's going to be found out. When yeah. someone said, you know, when someone approaches him like fans often do in this book, he's always, nervous like that the one person is going to be the one that sort of was aware of this because he's he's not fully sure that the manuscript doesn't exist anywhere or that someone else doesn't know about it or and he's aware mm -hmm. that it came from this guy who died's life so maybe someone in that life which turns out to be true um is around and is going to call him on it so that's the thing that's the real thing is that he did this act thinking it was going to give him everything he wanted and this is what I meant, and also I think it relates to my dream, is that you think you're going to do this because you just want it so badly. And it really is mm -hmm. like a fantasy narrative come to life. But you really know at the same time, and that's, this is the part that's borne out, it's not going to make you happy. Mm -hmm. You can't resist it. I guess mm -hmm. it's like being an addict in a way. Yeah. You know it's not going to make you happy in the long term, but you cannot resist it. It's just, no, and I would say it's just like, but not really, but um, Light from Uncommon Stars, I feel like who the the queen of hell, like the, that desire for that passion, I think led her down a really terrible path that uh, ultimately didn't make her happy, I don't think, right? Because she was not able to pay, play music in front of other people. Exactly. Well, you, good good analogy, because like that's like the selling your soul thing, like all the, also all her students, they couldn't resist the idea of worldwide fame. Um, and then, of course, they ended up killing themselves, unfortunately, because they it didn't bring them the happiness they thought it would. Mm -hmm. So it brings up all those issues. The plot by Gene Vance Correlates. Is it terrible that like my first thought is like, I have to find myself a passion like that where I would kill people for it. <laughs> I just don't think I have it. Is it terrible? Yes. Passions. That's true because I thought of those, like, I don't think there is a, except in my nightmares, of course, where I would hurt someone like that for a goal. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to, I also have a personality thing where I just want to be found out for myself rather than me having to sort of manipulate the world into thinking I'm something. Yeah, of course. He loves for me, which yeah. no one else feels in the world, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> what did you read, darling? Uh, I read a couple of books, so I'll talk about that. We them. don't have a lot of time, so just do one. <laughs> <laughs> Typical friend. Okay. Talk for 40 minutes. <laughs> I'm going to do them very quickly because uh, they're very you short books. Um, so I've been doing a lot of like exploring and reading. I've actually been enjoying a lot of children's picture books. <laughs> and so I'm going to uh, briefly talk about like a couple that I read that I really enjoyed and maybe an adult poetry book just because I like to leave people with like an adult recommendation as well. But uh, the first picture book is called Ten Little Dumplings by Larissa Fan, illustrated by Cindy Woom. Um, it's for obviously for little kids. It starts with a story about these 10 brothers and how these brothers in China, it's like a very lucky number. It's great that there are 10 of them. And it kind of goes through the story of like the different activities they do. However, I think this book is like a really subversive children's book because halfway through, I'm going to try to find it because I have it checked out on Libby. And I just Ten pad. Little Dumplings, you said? Ten Little Dumplings, Do you remember, yes. is this like, I don't even know, is this considered racist? Wanna, Do you remember huh? Five Chinese Brothers? That's I'm not familiar with that book. Is it really? racist? God, it was, well, I guess my generation, it was like. Well, you know what? I, I will say Five Chinese Brothers. I have to look it up, but. I do wonder if this author references it. Mm. It was published in 1938. So, oh, let me look at what? the cover. The cover is not looking promising. <laughs> of what? Of, of the five Chinese brothers. Well, they're, they're wearing very traditional Chinese outfits, mm. right? Oh, man. Like with the yeah, little, yeah. is it terrible? <laughs> I wonder if. I'm not loving it. I'll say, like, mm. I'm looking at the pictures of it, and I am not loving it. Um, but that was published in 1938. Yeah. So this one came out like last year and um let's see, I'm gonna go it's on my Libby. Can you see this? Well, I yeah, I'm just looking that five Chinese uh, brothers was accused of more stereotyping. Yeah, it's it's super stereotypical and the illustrations. So I'll read you the the a little bit of the first page. So in the village of Fang Fu, at the top of the hill, in the very large house, there lived a special family, special because they had 10 sons. To have one son was considered lucky. To have 10 was great luck indeed. And so it goes through the, the 10 sons. They're camping. They're eating together. They're doing all kinds of activities and going out at school, doing races, painting. And then it gets to one of the pages. And it says, those dumplings were my brothers. You may not have seen me, but I was there too. You just need to look more closely. And this is where like the book gets really subversive because there was a sister and the sister was there throughout the pages, just painted in different uh. sections. And I love this because at the very end, the author talks about how, well, I think within Chinese culture, but not just Chinese culture, I think within like American society too, I think there is this um, preference for like young men, right? Young boys. And she kind of pushes back against that. And I do wonder if she's referencing the five Chinese brothers specifically. And I love it because this book, I think, conceptually does a lot of things. Like, number one, it talks about the underrepresentation of, of young women, right, in Chinese culture. Um, and, and she does it and pushes back against that story in a very creative way. And I also love that there is this other layer where if you're a child and the story is being read to you, you have this moment where you're like, oh, and then you get to go back to the beginning and you get to look for the daughter. And I think that's a really fun activity. So you go through the book one way, uh, expecting this one story, and then you can read it a second time. And it's a whole different kind of activity for the child. So I, I love this book a lot. I, I recommend it really highly. It's a picture and book. It's a, it's yeah, it's like a forty page picture book. It's in our collection. Um, I think it's one that's like great for adults and kids, like fun for adults. I think it, it allows you to kind of think about real social issues and to have that conversation with your child if you would like to, right? But it's also just like a fun, like a really fun book for the child um, themselves. And then the other book uh, I was gonna recommend was Wishes by Monty Van and Victor Knight. Wishes? Wishes, yes. Okay. And this is like a almost fantastical picture book, but it essentially talks about this journey, um, a journey from like a village to the city. And the city is almost like futuristic looking. It has um, kind of unrecognizable uh, skyscrapers, but it is very much like a, you know, a metaphor for a, um, 
I think a refugee journey because the author, uh, let me see, I think I wrote this down. Uh, yeah, yeah. So the author, uh, uh, Monty Van, they left Vietnam because her father was um, hiding from the government after the Civil War and to, to like avoid imprisonment. And so her family had to leave and they went to Hong Kong to find safety. And in their journey to like leave Vietnam, they also had to leave family members behind, including I think her grandfather, who she never saw again. And that's also depicted in the story. But I, I think the art is so beautifully done. Like the the colors are really glowing um, because it almost looks fantastical in some ways. I think it can be um, a lot of different kinds of journeys, right? It's not necessarily set in like Vietnam itself because it is like kind of fantastical looking. Um, and then the end location could be Hong Kong, but it could be any other kind of urban landscape. Um, and so I think it works on a lot of different levels that way. And it's a, it's a, it's a very short book. There's only like 75 words. So it was very beautiful. Aww. And then the last one, the adult, I'm like whipping through these, right? I'm going to do this in like 10 minutes talks. You don't have to, um, I feel like you have to hustle because I, I'm an endless talker and I don't like, you know, I mean, I like that because I feel like with you're going to go books, first next time and you're going to start oh talking for me. But I kind of like that because I feel like you go, you read your books in like a very layered kind of way. I think I'm kind of a fast reader just because I'd like to get through a lot of books all at once. Mm -hmm. Um, and I have to work on more of that slow reading, which I don't think I do as much, which is why I like it when we do these group readings, because it makes me slow down. So I'm like, Frank's going to have questions about this. I have to pay attention. Okay. <laughs> uh, but the, so your poetry book for adults. The poetry book for adults is Things You May Find Hidden in My Ear by Mosab Abu Toha. Um, I've been revisiting a lot of poetry because... I used to be on that poetry committee that NYPL has, and I think I got really burnt out, and I stopped reading for a bit. And so I'm getting back into it. And this is the first one that I've read this year where I felt like, you know, when you read a book and you feel this, like, oomph, you know, this mm -hmm. book kind of did it for me. And it describes um, Toha's, like, real-life experiences, I think, in Gaza during the Israeli bombings. Um, I forget what year. Was it May? Let me look. And is it a book length poem or is it individual poems? That it's a bunch of individual poems. Oh, the Israeli bombing in May 2021. Um, so there's like this. They're very, I think a lot of the poems are very short. They're very clear. They have a, a, a clear sense of like place and tone. And I really appreciate that about it. Um, there's a few moments in it that I think are, I mean, there's a, there are descriptions of a lot of death and bombings and kind of really horrible things. Although I would not say it's excessive. I think it's necessary um, because like, you know, he describes the death of his friends. He describes his uh, his own wounds with like shrapnel mm. and how that tore into him. But there was one section um, where it talks about um, like the bombings, um, the houses were not Hamas, the kids were not Hamas, their clothes and toys were not Hamas, the neighborhood was not Hamas, the air was not Hamas, our ears were not Hamas, our eyes were not Hamas, the one who ordered the killing, the one who pressed the button thought only of Hamas. My brother Hudefe was born deaf and mute. He never grew up well either physically or mentally, but emotionally he was fine. You didn't know that. He was watching TV with us when videos and photos of deformed bodies and limbless people appeared on the TV screen. Two days later, Hudefa was hit inside in a place we couldn't see. We gave him a glass of water. He poured it on the floor. He broke dishes, snatched the TV cord, bit his clothes. We cried for him. We prayed for him. Days later, he came back to us. And I think um, that like was a passage that really stood out to me because it talks about the physical um effects of war but also talks about the like deep internal traumas that happen like the way it describes that um how he was hit but he was hit internally by these images and how that like stays with you you know and how it can keep affecting you and how that's its own kind of trauma i also the other things i really liked was i mean liked in the sense i thought was powerful not like yeah. liked that i enjoyed that it was happening but um i think the way it places 
his just like he's just a student trying to go to school trying to pass his tests while these bombings are happening and there's a line in there where um it's after he finished his first finals and a bomb fell uh rock pigeons egyptian pigeons uh, king pigeons and halabi pigeons a tiny egg fell my answers must have fallen off the pages of my exam maybe melting from fear i saw black smoke rise from a building a few kilometers away blacker than the ink on my exam sheets and i think that juxtaposition of these like very standard things that kids are going through which is tests in school but juxtaposed uh juxtaposed juxtaposed <laughs> set against set against um this backdrop of like bombs and war is is mm. it's a it's a tough read right like it's a it's tough to think about that's happening obviously like all over the world right when you were on the committee did you mm -hmm. read death republic yeah i like that one by Kaminsky. It, what you're telling me about this book what's it called again say it again the title Things you may find hidden in my, in my ear. ear. Which is interesting because Deaf Republic, it, I kept thinking of Deaf Republic, which is also it has to do with ears, actually. But it, Deaf Republic is like the occupied town. Um, yeah. Wartime and how that impacts people in the town. And he juxtaposes like daily life mm -hmm. with these horrible things. And um, I'm sure it's different, but it's certainly different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I thought of that. And Deaf Republic is a book length poem, I think. I mean, I think he wrote them individually, but they all interconnect and it, it is a book length. I, like I think novel and verse. I could be wrong, and I don't know if I'm using this word correctly, but I felt like Deaf Republic was more like allegorical in some sense. Like, I don't think right. it was so tied into this one specific place, but instead it was like a city that was oppressed and these things were happening. That right, because everyone goes deaf, yes. and it's definitely allegorical for... Y yes, and I think there was... Yes, whereas this one actually has a lot of these, like, um, images oh. in there too, right? Um, that is... Um, paired with text so you see there's one of like seashells the seashells are filled with sound of lapping waves our feet running on the sand and the stories we heard from our grandfather there is no space for the note for the noise of a drone and i really like this like last picture which is just a bowl of strawberries mm. which is really just beautiful and it says through it all the strawberries have never stopped growing and i think that is kind of a encapsulates a lot of what this book is saying which is that people are just continuing to live and go about their days and find these small moments of beauty when all of these terrible things are happening around them um so i don't know i really love this one did the author take the pictures um i want to say yes but i'm not really sure the author's actually very young um they started the edward saeed library uh is it in gaza or palace Die. Where's the Edward Said Library? I don't know. <laughs> um, you know what? It, it's kind of terrible because I think it shows how little I know, like contemporary history and whatever. That I, I I just thought this guy, the author, as I was reading it, because I didn't know a lot about the subject, that he was somebody who was much much older, and that this was happening like far in the past. And no, um, it was not. It was right. happening last year, and that was to me a, a really shocking realization. Yeah. Yeah, it's in, I think it's in Palestine's, the Eber Said Library. I think he was the one that maybe started it. Oh, he founded it, yes. Palestinian poets, Masab Abu Toha. He founded the library? I believe so. Let's Good see. Point. Edward Said, the author. He's a visiting poet and scholar at Harvard University. Um, well, wait, did he? Maybe he didn't. Well, honey, oh, he, he, is, he is. He is the founder of it. <laughs> okay. It's Gaza's first English language library. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Truly, actually. Huh. Thank you. All right. We're going to read The Women's House of Detention, A Queer History by Hugh Ryan for the next time, which I'm sort of thrilled about because it's local history for Jefferson Market Library. and but I think we'll deal with very interesting themes we can all get behind, I think. And I'm looking forward to being surprised by something I didn't know about the history of this particular part of Greenwich Village. And you will enjoy it regardless, Crystal, correct?
Yes, of course. <laughs> She's like, yes, of course, Frank. I will do whatever you say. Um, well, great. So we'll read Women's House of Detention. And thanks, everybody, so much for listening. And see you next time. Or hear you. Thanks for listening to The Librarian is In, a podcast by the New York Public Library. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, or send us an email at podcasts at nypl.org. For more information about the New York Public Library, please visit nypl.org. We are produced by Christine Farrell. Your hosts are Frank Hilarious and Crystal Chen.